The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Fast Money does start right now. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Bono and Eisen. Tonight on Fast, no pain, no gain. That is a message from Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson, where he sees stocks headed as we close in on August. Plus, Boeing hitting new headwinds today. We heard exclusively from the company's CEO when he expects air travel to return to normal. And we're all over the after-hours action. Qualcomm and PayPal, both companies just reporting results, how our traders are playing the earnings moves. But we start off with big tech's big day on Capitol Hill. Let's take a live look here at Capitol Hill, where the CEOs of Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, all testifying before the House Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee. Let's get straight to Kayla Tausche with some of the details here. Kayla. Melissa, four hours in and a third round of questioning underway as Republicans challenge Apple, Amazon, Facebook and Alphabet on political censorship and Democrats take aim at the size and power these companies have amassed. Here's the subcommittee chair, David Cicilline. Our founders would not bow before a king, nor should we bow before the emperors of the online economy. These four horsemen of the technology industry responded in kind, saying, in fact, they each face healthy competition in their respective fields. Competition drives us to innovate, and it also leads to better products, lower choices, and more choices for everyone. Customers have a lot of choices, and then our products face fierce competition. Companies like Samsung, LG, Huawei, and Google have built successful businesses with different approaches. We're okay with that. I recognize that there are concerns about the size and power of tech companies. Our services are about connection, and our business model is advertising, and we face intense competition in both. Well, so far, the executives have largely sidestepped controversy as they were probed over the App Store, content policing, China policy, counterfeit goods. Jeff Bezos of Amazon said that the company does, in fact, pursue aggressive pricing to promote its own products, but that it doesn't harvest third-party sellers' data to do just that. But perhaps, Melissa, the most direct questioning about whether these companies are too powerful and too big came to Mark Zuckerberg when he was asked specifically about Instagram and whether Instagram and Facebook should be split up. Uh, Jer Jerry Nadler, the full committee chair, cited 2012 emails from Zuckerberg uh, saying that essentially they were taking out a competitor. And Zuckerberg said, actually, in hindsight, maybe you could sense that Instagram would grow. But at the time, we didn't know how much it would grow. And with the same information that the company had, the FTC in 2012 approved it unanimously. 
Melissa. All right, Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tauschen, again, these hearings are ongoing in Washington, D.C. We'll go to them occasionally as news warns. But uh, first, Dan, you know, I'm wondering if there was any company in particular that you thought suffered the most damage from these Congress people who were pretty aggressive in their questioning. Yeah, they were pretty aggressive, but I think they show, again, that they're just outclassed. They're out of their league when they're asking these questions of these titans. And when you think about it, they, they came really hard for Mark Zuckerberg. Zuckerberg, though, went out of his way to kind of say that he is not the behemoth that some of the other of his counterparts who were in this hearing with him, obviously Amazon, uh, Google with the size of their video platform, Amazon with the growth of their ad platform, and obviously Apple with the, I think he even mentioned iMessage as the most um, widely used uh, messaging app in North America. So he kind of distinguished himself a little bit rather than being a battering ram. I think he caught a, a lot of questions. Um, he has not fared so well in the past in these environments. I think he did very well sticking on script here. But again, I, Kara Swisher says this all the time, and maybe at some point Congress will listen to her. This is not how you do it. This is not how you grill these sorts of people who built these sorts of businesses. So, you know, nobody was expecting too much here. And I, don't, I think we're going to walk away. And these guys are going to be like, that was a walk in the park. Yeah, it gives you a glimpse, though, into the minds of the Congress people when you when you listen to the lines of questioning. Um, one question, Tim, was to the effect of, "Will you uh, not rig the election, basically, in favor of Joe Biden?" <laughs> Another line of questioning is, "Why why does the Echo, the <clears throat> Amazon Echo, when you say buy batteries, go to Amazon's batteries?" Um, so there are a lot of really pointed yeah. things to go to. And it, and it seemed like, you know, it seemed like the, the Democrats were more aggressive than the Republicans, despite the fact that DOJ, which is where a lot of this is supposed to be emanating, is, you know, there's some sense that this might be uh, from the administration led. But uh, I, if anyway, I thought Google was getting the, the biggest, uh, uh, you know, kind of shot across the nose and, and I, not that they can't handle it. And I, I think Sundar Pichai was, was very good. I think the humility and, and trying to give uh, explanations to folks that might not understand but, you know, the assessment that Google is not the, the gateway to the Internet, but it's a walled garden uh, and talking about how they quit working with the Pentagon and yet they're working closely with China. Um, so, you know, there, there, there were these attacks. I, I, I just go back to the stocks. First of all, they fell three and a half to five percent between these four in the last five days off of essentially blow off tops that I don't know that we're too far away from getting back to. Uh, this started in 2019, June of 2019, where uh, that's really where uh, you should have bought these stocks if you're worried about this, because uh, they, they rebounded quite substantially as we got throughout the rest of the summer. And since then, you know, largely haven't looked back, you know, obviously uh, subject to what's happened through the crisis. But, uh, I, you know, this is right now, I, I don't think uh, much to do about anything. Uh, the big issue for this, uh, these companies will come tomorrow when we talk about their earnings. It's interesting that you thought Sondar Pichai um, faced the most grilling. The New York Times had this sort of breakdown of how many questions uh, were directed to each CEO. This is as of 420, and granted the hearings are going on, so this sort of could have changed. But Sundar Pichai got 33 questions versus Zuckerberg and Bezos each got 25. Cook got 12. Um, yeah. Guy, I don't yeah. know what you walked away with in terms of who got the most heat. I guess it doesn't matter in the end, as these guys have mentioned, because no, the stock's I, not I, doing anything. I, I don't think it... Yeah, I don't think, I think what, if anything, it just reinforced why these companies are so uh, profitable and why their stocks do go higher. I mean, they just made their case for them in the questions that they asked. The hypocrisy of the whole thing, though, is what really strikes me, as most of these congressmen and women will go home in their cars, 
They'll Google or use Facebook <laughs> to see how they did with their line of questioning. And they'll wind up with their Apple phones in their hands to their front porch and get their Amazon boxes, like we all do, by the way. So the entire thing is, is folly in theater, and we've talked about that. The stocks are valuable for a reason. I don't think anybody walked away with it um, injured. I don't think anybody did any disservice to their companies. And I think the theater that we typically see was on display again. It is amazing, Bonowin, that throughout the course of the past couple of years, with news of each additional investigation, whether it be by federal uh, regulators or by state AGs, that the stocks just continue to chug higher. It, it almost, you can almost throw anything at them in terms of investigation, and it doesn't matter to the price. Yeah, these things are pretty impervious. Um, and you know, as a lot of the other panelists have said, the more that this is a, becomes a repetitive issue, it seems, it just really comes across as if this is really a witch hunt. Um, of the companies, I would say Apple seems the most insulated just in terms of the dynamics of uh, its revenue attribution. But uh, yeah, I mean, it didn't really seem substantive and I don't really understand the logic in terms of questioning these tech titans on the technicalities of their business. Again, that, that wouldn't be the approach, not necessarily what I expected, but I've just grown accustomed to throwing spaghetti at a wall, watching it slide down, and then buying the shares. All right. Let's get more reaction to today's big tech hearings. Joining us now is the former chief security officer at Facebook, Alex Stamos. Alex, great to have you with us. Thank you. Um, I know that you observed all of this, and I'll ask you the same question I asked the panel here. Did any company emerge from this uh, injured in any way? I'm not sure. I think what we're seeing is we're seeing kind of two different hearings layered on top of each other. Uh, from the Democrats' questioning, most of it was actually about antitrust. Um, and I think in that area, there's a lot of legitimate complaints from the various representatives. The problem is that they're all very different, right? So the, the kind of antitrust concerns for these four different companies come from very different directions. They're talking about Amazon's use of its knowledge to compete in the physical world, of Apple and Google having platforms that they control, and of Facebook buying or copying competitors. And so uh, you know, while all of them took some shots on it, I'm not sure there's any out actual outcome for that. Uh, on the Republican side, it was mostly a litany of various complaints that they have about other policies that are completely irrelevant to antitrust. Um, and, and from that side, you know, I think it's going to get some sound bites for the various representatives, but there's not going to be any real outcome from them pushing on this. So, so Alex, we just talked, there was a Democratic side, there was a Republican side, but isn't this antitrust battle that's coming for these tech behemoths here in the U.S. going to come most likely from the EU. We know that obviously there's been some dust kicked up there already. And isn't that what we would expect to see how they fare? And then it comes back home to our shores. Yeah, I think for the CEOs, if their biggest concern will be with EU uh, regulation, specifically out of the competition, uh, DG Comp, um, and investigations from that side, uh, because you know a competition regulator is actually going to look at the impact of markets, which is something that you didn't hear anything about in this hearing, right? You heard very little about any actual harm to consumers, where the Europeans have a theory of the size of these companies harming European competitors uh, and European consumers, and I think that's in the long run that's going to be much more effective than kind of having this litany of complaints um, that can't be solved with antitrust. Do you think that the, sorry, it's Tim, welcome and thanks for joining us. Do you think that there's any uh, of these CEOs, no one wants an antitrust breakup, uh, but a lot of people have pointed to that some of these companies are a lot more valuable uh, based upon the sum of the parts. 
Um, mm. and, and how do you think these CEOs are thinking about that? Do you think any of them have contingency plans or this really just gets into more of a, a corporate tactical strategy? But as we look at this as investors, uh, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't find it catastrophic. In fact, I think it might be the opposite if DOJ really pushed hard. You know, it's an interesting question. I, again, you know, it's a, such a different issue with each company. I think in some cases, a breakup would at least change competition. So like the Facebook case, you could make Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp separate companies. Uh, and that might increase shareholder value over the long run to have them compete against one another. It might not. It's, it's hard to make that prediction. But at least it's something that's a, a remedy to the kinds of complaints people have about Facebook. When you talk about Apple or Google, it, it, you know, a breakup remedy doesn't really get you there, right? Like, it, it's not realistic to break Apple into multiple units that compete on iPhone. The issue there is their control of the App Store and whether or not the, they're using the App Store to suppress their competitors. Same thing with Google and their dominance in search. Like, you know, there's no good way to break up Google's dominance in search. Uh, and so I think for those kinds of companies, the outcome could possibly be some kind of consent decree or another agreement that keeps them from utilizing their incredible power and the amount of data they have um, in competition. I, I think really the only company that probably should be worried about uh, breaking up is is Facebook and maybe Amazon, although there's been very little discussion of the fact that Amazon is both a massive retailer and the world's largest cloud provider, which is something that's talked about a lot in tech and here in Silicon Valley that hasn't made it to the floor yet. But that is something that I think some regulators will look at. But the bottom line, Alex, is do you think that all these guys go home or maybe they are already home and they just sort of think, wow, that was tough, but I'm glad I'm done and and uh, life goes on. Nothing comes of it. Uh, yeah, I don't think any of these CEOs are worried from yeah. the outcome here. I, the, I, I'm always amazed at these hearings of the fact that the the structure is so incredibly inefficient and is so poorly designed to actually nail down these folks. You know, you're breaking it up into these five-minute chunks for different right. representatives, and going back and forth between Republican and Democrat means that you, you have no consistency in the questioning, that you're talking about actual competition issues, and the moment you get somewhere interesting, it's over, and now you're talking about, oh, this guy got taken down on Twitter, and Twitter's not even there, right? Like, all these complaints about Twitter, who is even represented, is one of the silly things that, that's going on right now. Um, and so I think if they want these hearings to be more effective, they're going to need to find a model where, you know, somebody who actually knows what they're talking about is spending 15 or 20 minutes right. asking questions that are actually based upon reality, not this kind of litany of political issues for which they want to get sound bites. Right. And then the ping-ponging between the CEOs is very disruptive. Uh, Alex, great to have you. Yeah. Thank you, Alex Stamos. Thank you. Um, it's a dog and pony show. I mean, let's put it straight, right? Let's just call it what it is, right? Um, but at the same time, if we get at some of the remedies that could be proposed, which company would be the most scathed? Which would be the least guy? The, I think remedies, the, mo the most potentially the most one hurt, I would think Facebook. And I think the least one hurt would be Apple, just back of the envelope stuff. I mean, maybe you can argue on the Facebook, but I think it seems to me that Apple's probably the most impervious to any of this, my opinion. Yeah, Tim, what do you say? Well, I, you know, Apple seems to me with, with the App Store and the complaints from the developers and the complaints from people like Spotify, we heard the CEO after the bell. I mean, that to me seems the most vulnerable. And, and I think Apple, and if you look at their revenue and you look at the services revenue, we've, we've thrown, and I've heard Dan talk about this too, uh, to the extent that we've thrown so much in terms of a fresh multiple at Apple uh, on services, if, if you, if, you know, that seems to be the place where ultimately, look, the competitive environment is, is such where an efficient market should, should you know, settle that score it hasn't so far. Um, I think Apple remains under pressure. Yeah. Bonneman, what do you think? 
Um, you know what, I think just in terms of, again, in terms of revenue attribution, I believe the App Store is only about 10% of, of Apple's overall revenue. So while there may be a higher probability that that thing becomes a, a headline issue, in terms of the overall business mix, I would think that, that in fact they're the least affected. Um, Amazon to me seems like there, there's a bit of an issue there, um, at least from, from a headline risk. Facebook has kind of already been through the ringer and I think they've kind of been you know, it, you know, it, it, for lack of a better word, exposed or pressured. From Amazon's point of view, you know, keeping data and then using that to change the competitive landscape, I think that's something that could be probed a bit more and that they're going to have to provide some, some uh, pretty, uh, you know, logical explanations and answers for. It was interesting how Bezos came out. He was the first CEO to start his testimony, and he came out saying who he was telling his story. He was the child of a high school, almost dropout, a teen mom, et cetera, got adopted. But the whole nine yards, it was a very convincing story, Dan. And from the richest man, perhaps on the planet at this point, um, it was probably a smart move. Listen, Bezos is the goat. There's no doubt about <laughs> it. And he's the least likely. It's just a fact. That's and he, greatest of all time guy. Yeah, guy. Um, <laughs> you know, he, his business is the least likely. Go ahead and try to spin out AWS, and all of a sudden you're going to have a top 10 NASDAQ 100 company on your hands that's just going to just steamroll everybody else anyway. So, you know, to me, I don't think there's a strong likelihood that that company gets broken up. If anything, even with Facebook, when you think about it, you know, the, the, uh, the, the discussion about Instagram back in 2012, it was a no-revenue company for $1 billion. Well, what's happened? We've seen Facebook's proper um, you know, vertical kind of move over to Instagram. And Instagram has a lot of risk right now. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, we talked about it last night and he mentioned it today. TikTok is the real deal here and mm -hmm. it's coming after them. And then when you have upstarts like Snapchat, which is a $2 billion revenue company, um, but that commands a lot of mind share among teams, you have to be worried, teens that is, um, you have to be worried. So to me, Facebook is the one that I think posed uh, with the most risk. And listen, we didn't even talk about trust and safety yet. You know, that is the grievance of the Republicans in some ways is just kind of the, um, you know, kind of the pushing their voices down to the side. The Democrats have a real argument on the trust and safety. And if there is any um, ill toward action on that platform that affects our election in the fall, they're coming for Facebook with the picket, uh, you know, with the pick forks uh, there. All right. We'll continue to monitor these tech hearings. We'll bring you any news as it develops. Uh, meantime, let's turn now to the other big story of the day, and that would be the Fed. Policymakers wrapping up a two-day meeting with the news conference from Chairman Jay Powell. Let's bring in Steve Leesman here. Um, Steve, he added a thinking to thinking about thinking about raising rates. Yeah, I, I don't know exactly how many thinkings there were. When I asked the question last time, <laughs> it was we're not even thinking about thinking. And I think there's three now, or there might even be four, which means it's way down. And he kind of took the back of his hand and swatted away the question about inflation. So we're just not worrying about that. And it was a really actually sort of a fun quote from the chairman, if you will, where he said, um, upside, we're not worried about the upside. We know what to do in that case. We're all prepared for that. And the opposite <laughs> are they prepared for that well th that's that's where he's focused and it's been a really interesting kind of dynamic here where i think the fed has had this right but i'm not sure that following the fed having this right made anybody some money and if you give me a second to explain um powell has been hammering this idea of 
the uncertainty about the economic effects of the virus, the uncertainty about the course of the virus. And, and I think if you go back and look at him hammering that uncertainty, he's been correct about how things ended up. We were not coming back very quickly. Mm -hmm. There was a good chance we were going to have another spread of the virus. There was a good chance uh, that we we're going to have another downturn. That was a big part of what he emphasized today was that the high frequency data that they're looking at has gone flat to turning downward. All of that has meant an enormous amount of stimulus from the Federal Reserve. And all of that has meant the stock market can go about its merry way, I mean, ostensibly oblivious to what's going on with the virus and now the uh, you know ensuing downturn or, or, or slowing of the pace of the recovery. So Powell's had this right, the Fed has had this right, but I think following them would have led you to a much too pessimistic a view about what was going to happen with stocks. Yeah. Um, we had our panel on Power Lunch uh, shortly after this. You're part of that panel, Steve, and, and Mona Mahajan had made the point that the next meeting in September is the last meeting before the election. So the probability of making any sort of major move, whether it be, well, obviously with rates, that's, that's just not going to happen for the foreseeable future, I would think. Um, but also any major moves that could possibly change the market trajectory, changing language, et cetera, would be very unlikely. I don't agree with that. I think uh, okay. this was a pause of a meeting. I mm -hmm. think uh, depending upon now, remember what the Fed did today. It inserted that, that, that thing. It said the outcome of the economy is dependent upon the course of the virus. So that tells you exactly what's going to happen or not with Fed policy if this thing gets worse. But I think the Fed is prepared to make a variety of moves, at least one in September, where it goes to a more firm forward guidance, perhaps related to economic data, mm -hmm. um, and might even be prepared, if things get worse in September, to launch a formal QE program. So I don't think the Fed is going to be dissuaded by the election. I think it's going to be influenced by the, by the economy and the data. Steve, always great to speak with you. Thanks for your analysis. Pleasure. Steve Leesman. Quickly here, can you believe that they got more dovish, Guy? Was that even possible? Apparently it was. You throw in an extra thinking, make it three, and it, you're more dovish. It, it would appear, well, clearly the market thought that for the, the majority of the afternoon. But, you know, it's interesting, and again, I'm, I'm not an economist, I don't pretend to be, but what I'll say is I understand that the U.S. dollar does not fall under the purview of the Federal Reserve, but, you know, the U.S. dollar has had a precipitous decline. Tim talks about it, Dan talks about it over the last month, month and a half, whether you realize it or not, and I think people that watch sort of understand it, as the dollar diminishes in value, that creates inflation, although it's not called that. So your buying power going down is inflationary. I don't know if the Fed takes that into consideration or they choose to sort of gloss over that, but that's problematic. I mention it because it's their actions that are making the U.S. dollar go lower. So. You know, you have to really examine these things for what's happening below the surface. Uh, and I think it's really problematic at a certain point. Let's talk more about the Fed and bring in Mike Wilson, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, great to have you with us. Thanks, Melissa. Um, your, your bull case, just to remind our viewers, 3,700. Um, but you say the most likely scenario would be a range of 3,350 to 3,700. Given what the Fed or what Jerome Powell specifically said today about think not thinking about thinking about thinking about raising rates, do you think that the more likely scenario is closer to 3,700 at this point? Well, look, I mean, I think that, I mean, this policy that is, you know, being talked about today, this is not new, right? The Fed has been ultra-dovish uh, since March, and, 
you know, quite frankly, they've been probably the most pessimistic economists out there that I've, you know, listened to. And I think part of that is the strategy uh, that allows them to remain extremely dovish. They want to make it perfectly clear that they're not going to stand in the way of this recovery. It's not going to be their fault if this recovery falters. And I think that's the right, you know, sort of stance for them to take at this point. Um, but, you know, uh, if you think about the upside for next year, it's not going to come from, you know, multiple expansion. We've already had that. It's going to come from earnings. And that's the story that I think folks are going to start to focus on next, which is that there's a lot of operating leverage in these business models now because they have cut costs so deeply, whether it be employment or SG&A or T&E or whatever. I mean, this stuff has come down dramatically. And so, you know, if the stimulus works and we get, you know, revenues to come back, there's going to be tremendous operating leverage stories. And that's what we're excited about for next year and even in the fall. And a lot of these stocks that have the most operating leverage are actually the stocks that have been underperforming for the last, you know, month and a half or two months as interest rates have come down. So we think the pendulum's going to swing back as people get more comfortable with the economy reopening. Um, I don't know if rates are going to shoot up or not, but ultimately they will. I think what Guy was talking about a minute ago on inflation is really important. That's probably a story for next year. And that's going to evoke more interest in these things that are actually positively related to nominal GDP and interest rates going up. And that's our, that's our positioning. So we like a barbell right now still of cyclical stocks, recovery stocks, paired up with kind of these COVID winners, which you know, seem to be defying valuation in the near term. Hey, Mike, and I appreciate your comments. Have you, is there a point on the chart where lower rates actually become a headwind? And, and furthermore, is there a point where you say, you know, this weakening U.S. dollar, which historically has been this great tailwind for multinationals, becomes sort of a headwind for an economy here that's obviously 73% driven by the consumer? Yeah, I think those are, are two really important points. So first of all, the, the bond market signaling from the nominal, you know, interest rate market is, is a false signal right now, all right? I mean, those are being affected by what the Fed is doing and saying. So I'm focused on break-evens. I'm also focused on things like precious metals and other commodities, things that are telling us that actually there is some, you know, inflationary uh, buildup going on out there. And the weaker dollar is part of that story, guy. You, you hit the nail on the head. And, and I don't think it's a constraint now. Uh, but what I do think it does is it does challenge this Fed ultra-dovish view. I mean, I think at some point they do care about the dollar if it were to fall out of the head uh, because it will be inflationary. That will put a constraint on them on the other side. Plus, they are supposed to be stewards of the currency at some level, right? I mean, that's the Treasury's job. But, you know, we don't want to see the U.S. dollar fall out of bed completely. So I think that is going to be a constraining factor on their dovishness at some point later this year. Hey, Mike, you just mentioned, obviously, next year you're expecting operating leverage. Companies realized a lot of efficiencies, cost cuts, that sort of thing. So when you think about 2021, that's how you get to this multiple, not just based on expansion, but based on earnings growth. Here's the, here's the one issue that I, I kind of take with that argument is that we are seeing corporate America shed jobs that may not come back. That's part of that efficiency. So we're coming off of 3.5%, 60-year low unemployment, and we may be at high single digits, 10% unemployment for 2021. So how do you square that with what – I'm just thinking that at some point in the next few months, we are going to be talking about a double-dip uh, recession the same way we were talking in 2010 and 11. But this, this time it might happen because technology did it, the winners of the pandemic. Pandemic, the very the very ones that you just kind of mentioned also yeah look I mean we're not anticipating infl uh, unemployment back at where we were anytime soon it's gonna take multiple years but you know we do think unemployment will be making modest progress um, lower over the course of the next six to twelve months and I, I would gather that by the end of this year we're back in the single digits and then the recovery kind of begins 
But Dan, as you know, I mean, that's that's when the operating leverage shows up. I mean, yeah, it's unfortunate that these folks are going to be out of work for another you know few years. Probably, you know, they'd love to get back to work, but it's going to take time. The economy is going to recover, and companies will be slow to hire folks back. And as long as the fiscal stimulus remains in place, which I think it will, I think these deficits are going to become more structural in nature, particularly if we have a blue sweep. And and so, I mean, the revenue will come back. I mean, we've seen that already. It's been remarkable how fast, you know, people can find ways to spend the money in other ways that they can't go out to a restaurant or they can't do things that are, you know, big gatherings of people. They find other ways to spend the money. So I think that pump will continue to be primed. That's going to be where the revenue comes from, from a fiscal standpoint, and then the operating leverage will flow through. Mike, thank you. Thank you, Melissa. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley. Here's a weird would you rather. I don't think I've ever asked this question. Uh-oh. Um, I'll pose it to Bono wow, since Bono in since he's the new guy. <laughs> uh, would you rather gold, Good luck, or, buddy. gold or equities right here? Oh, my goodness. The last time I played a game, I got myself in the penalty <laughs> box. So I'm a little <laughs> trepidatious here to even give you an answer. Um, gold. Wow. Gold. For all the reasons that everyone has touched upon. And I realize we are at nosebleed levels. But listen, this is, this is not going away anytime soon. You know, um, you know, we talked about the effects of multinationals. We talked about weakness in the dollar. All those things are going to contribute to what is now the, the safe haven commodity. And if you look at sovereign, sovereign yields globally, I mean, where else do you put the money? Um, Equities, you're going to have to take a, a, a ton more volatility, it particularly being that the new investment is going to be value or growth or recovery. So if I'm going to take shocks to the, to the system, I'd rather, mm-hmm. I'd rather own gold. All right. Coming up, we've got earnings alerts on Qualcomm and PayPal. Both stocks on the move in the after-hour session will bring you the trades. And we are still monitoring the tech hearings on Capitol Hill. We'll bring you any big headlines. Fast Money's back in two. Deeply coming into it. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. We've got earnings alerts on Qualcomm and PayPal, both stocks on the move in the after-hour session. Let's kick it off with Qualcomm, sharply higher by 12% after reporting an earnings beat. The company also settling a long-term license agreement with Huawei. Uh, so, Tim, what do you like about this quarter, if anything? Well, first of all, I think the ramp for 5G and Qualcomm is very important. Huawei, uh, I think, you know, largely expected, and, and as much as that headline seems like it might draw some attention, uh, you know, I, I don't think it's, it's all that extraordinary. Um, I, I think it gets back to valuation here. I think the valuation differential uh, with Qualcomm and other chips makes this kind of attractive, frankly, uh, especially with the, the rollout of 5G. Maybe we knew this, but in their 8K, they also said that, the, uh, that there was a, a negative impact in the fourth quarter, uh, which includes a partial impact from the delay of a global 5G flagship phone launch. And maybe it's been rumored for so long that Apple was going to delay its phone, Dan, that it's uh, not reacting at all to this. But I thought that was kind of interesting, that, that there are going to be some delays to some of these phones. Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I think that we, 
what the pandemic did was it wasn't just a demand thing. It was obviously a supply thing, and that pushed a lot of product roadmaps out a quarter or two. So you're starting to see a company like Qualcomm ramp right now. I think that they said in the release that they're really expecting this kind of second inflection point in demand as some of these companies now start to ramp. So, you know, listen, I, I, Apple's not going to tell you tomorrow night when they report that they're not launching um, a 5G iPhone, but it's just not going to be in any material size. That being said, with what Qualcomm is doing right now after the volatility it's had over the last six months, given some of the headwinds to some of the products in some of their end markets, it's pretty impressive trading at a new all-time high. I just, like, listen, you think about Intel, we talk about it a lot. How are these two companies not coming together, especially with Intel not in mobile right now? Yeah, I mean, think of the, the massive moves that we've seen in this space on the back of some earnings. And obviously, yeah. I'm thinking about AMD last night and then Qualcomm today, Guy. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable, the have and the have nuts, right? And that's actually a good thing, at least the market's discerning the winners from the losers, which I think is encouraging. <laughs> yeah. The Qualcomm quarter, not only was a quarter extraordinary, I think their guidance really encouraged a lot of people, given the fact that they seem to have clarity that a lot of other companies don't seem to have. The previous high to dance point was 96 and change in January, and we're obviously significantly higher than that now. I mean, this seems to be breaking out once again to the upside, not mm -hmm. unlike what we saw with AMD <laughs> over the last couple days. Personally, I do think we probably have to come back and revisit 96 at a certain point. But, mm. you know, that's your level right there to stay long and get long this name. All right. Up 11 percent after hours. Let's get to, uh, moving. Go to PayPal. Uh, those shares are uh, higher in the after hours session following its earnings report. Let's get to Kate Rooney for the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. PayPal benefiting from the boom in digital payments during COVID. The company saw its strongest quarter since splitting from eBay five years ago. PayPal topping $5 billion in revenue for the first time, beating Wall Street estimates. EPS, another record. Non-GAAP earnings per share jumped 49% year-over-year. That was a beat at $1.07. Total payments volume came in at $222 billion. That was about $10 billion above estimates. $37 billion of that came from Venmo, but still no mention yet of Venmo profitability. Net new active users for PayPal also hit a record in the quarter. That was $21.3 million. And a big one for investors, PayPal is back on track with a full-year forecast. It reinstated full-year guidance after scrapping it in May due to COVID uncertainty. PayPal now expecting 20% revenue growth in the back half of this year and EPS growth of 25%. That is way ahead of the high single-digit growth analysts were hoping for. Take a look at the stock popping about 4%, 3.5% after earnings. CEO Dan Schulman on the call just now saying this is coming from the world accelerating from, quote, physical to digital. It's fueling the rise of online payments. I'll be hopping on a video call with CFO John Rainey after the conference call wraps up this evening. You can catch highlights of that interview on CNBC tomorrow and on CNBC.com. Melissa, back to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. And obviously the pandemic has been an accelerant to a lot of trends that were going on prior to the pandemic, including the shift from physical to digital currency. I mean, who wants to touch money these days, Bonoin? It's so dirty and germy. <laughs> I'll, I'll take my chances, I assure you, with the germs. Um, I've got some hand gel on deck, so uh, I'll wave it in. Um, with that said, yes, this has been a darling of the pandemic, um, and it's still in a strong uptrend. I mean, they absolutely knocked the cover off the ball, beating in top and bottom line, user engagement, I mean, just across the board. So definitely remarkable earnings. You know, uh, the only thing that, that might give you pause, and the reason why you might only see the stock up, what, was it, what is it, three and a half, four percent after earnings, is that this is already trading at about 44 times next year's earnings. So, um, yeah, but again, all of these tech names, or all of these work from home names as well, are, are facing stretch valuations. But um, I mean, there's, there's really 
no holes to poke in it. I mean, they, they absolutely crushed it. Dan, you've liked this in the past. Yeah, so, so listen, you know, we talk a lot about Venmo. Kate just mentioned uh, people want to see the profitability of that peer-to-peer -peer payments network. That was a big story, peer-to-peer -peer payments um, before the pandemic. Now it's really pay with Venmo. That's going to be the next leg of this story. But we were talking about this name the other day. I mean, the steepness of this move off of the lows up now 125% or so, it's just I don't know how you invest like that. I don't know how you buy a stock like that. I will tell you from a trading perspective that the stock had been consolidating over the last few weeks or so, which set up the stage for even with high expectations, beating them the way they did and the pop that you have. But I wouldn't be surprised to see people take some profits here. Let's hear about this next leg. Let's hear about pay with Venmo in stores and what that means. And then to Bonneland's point about trading at 40 times next year, some of these stocks are going to have to take a little time times next year. Some of these stocks are going to have to take a little time and grow into these valuations. All right. Coming up, more turbulent times for Boeing after the company reported earnings, what the CEO had to say about the future of its business. And later, picture this, much more of that monster move in Kodak. Yeah, that's a name we haven't said on this show in a very long time. And why the options market says this isn't going to end well. As we head out, take another live look in Capitol Hill. The big tech CEOs now in hour four of testimony before Congress. Fast Money will be back right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Check out shares of Kodak up a whopping 318% today and this move after more than tripling yesterday. Now, you remember Kodak, of course, the photography pioneer. It was trading at just $2 on Monday, secured a $765 million loan from the Trump administration to make components for drugs to combat the coronavirus. Take a look at CEO, what CEO Jim Continenza had to say about the deal this morning. The pandemic started, Kodak wanted to see what we could do to participate. We were making hand sanitizers, face shields, PCB boards for ventilators. We realized we could do more. The government realized they could do more. They kind of reached out and uh, we, we found a path that makes a lot of sense. Now, there are many reasons why you might look at this uh, whole thing and, and think, hmm, that's interesting. Um, the $765 million loan, for instance, was more than seven times the company's market capitalization the day before the deal was announced. So a very outsized loan for that size company. If you also take a look at the trading volume on Monday before the deal was announced, it was over one million shares traded. Normally, this company has about 100 100,000 shares traded on a daily basis. On June 26th, that same million shares traded uh, was crossed 
when, when the average volume is typically 100,000 shares. So all of this put together, Tim, you sort of think, hmm, this is an interesting story. Yeah, it's interesting in a lot of different ways. I mean, obviously, five days ago, you could have reached into your pocket and probably bought this car, this, this company. And I think you have a case now. It's just, it, look, this feels like an insider's game. I mean, this was a company that was making film, uh, chemical, uh, you know, some, some type of chemical ingredients. And, and now um, is a company that today the president referred to as more relevant than a trillion-dollar stimulus plan because they're, they're making pharmaceutical ingredients that, in conjunction with a partnership between uh, the Department of Defense and, and the, you know, the IDC. I mean, you have this uh, bunch of new executive orders that have cobbled together a better use case for this company than we had uh, a week ago. So it's hard for investors to feel like they really have any edge here. It's hard to really understand exactly what this company will be doing. And it's certainly hard to justify this valuation other than the fact that they have a government contract. They have a loan that's backed by uh, the government. and And it does look like a company that certainly is in the right place. Um, so, no, this is, you know, look, we spent a lot of time on fast money in the last two months trying to point out that, uh, you know, in many cases, there are there are names that are justified uh, only by momentum and not necessarily by fundamentals. It doesn't mean uh, that this company can't be successful in their endeavors. I'm not sure what coming into this event made them in the pole position for this type of, of uh, a sponsorship. But uh, I think the best move was obviously two days ago and today. Yeah. I mean, I hope for the country's sake that this is all legitimate and that Kodak is able to produce these supplies which are needed in this country, Guy. But you got to take a look at the surface, and there are too many things that just make your eyebrow go, go up. As do I, Mel, but I think that's a completely separate topic. I think you would agree. Obviously, we wish them success for a myriad of different reasons. But to your earlier point about the volume, let's just call it like it is. Somebody or some group of people knew something ahead of time the volume suggests so you tell me so if if that is the case there should be some forensic accountants right now working on who who that person or group of people were because that's not how it's supposed to work on a side note we obviously wish kodak the best in terms of what they're trying to do for the country but that is ancillary to the point we're trying to make about somebody knew something prior to all this the volume speaks to that. I mean, that's just the way the game works. Options activity has also been crazy, Bonwin. What are you looking at? Uh, it's very, very, very fishy. So, you know, if you're looking back over the, the course of the last month or so, I think options traded about 7,000 uh, options between puts and calls on average. Fast forward to yesterday, 100,000 options traded, and today, over 300,000 options huh. traded. So this, we are talking about an explosion in terms of volumes and interest. What really stuck out to me was taking a look at the August two and a half strike put. Mind you, this stock touched 60 bucks, I think, yesterday and closed around $30. The two and a half strike put traded 100,000 times around 10 cents. Now, to me, this isn't really about the implied move or any of that. This is someone, the buyer at least, betting that this is not going to end well for Kodak. Um, you know, being that's a short date option, you pay 10 cents for it. And hopefully if there's a violent move, I believe we saw a move from about 44, 43 to about 33 going into the latter half of the trading session today. So really this is an op- opportunity for you to take advantage of some t- cheap options, spend about a million dollars in premium, and then sell those at a profit. The seller, of course, is, is betting that it's just not going to get down there. But um, selling lottery tickets is not the business that I am in. Yeah. Dan, what do you make of uh, the whole thing? 
Uh, I hope you have your waiters on, people, because welcome to the swamp. This was just one of the sketchiest things I've seen in the market in a very, very long time. I'm just telling you that right now. I mean, like, you know, uh, listen, maybe this company uh, on its merits because of its, you know, 100-year history in manufacturing or something is deserving of something to help our country through this. I just can't imagine how we arrive at a $735 million loan for basically what looks to be a blank check company. You know, that CEO on Squawk and Friends this morning looked downright giddy. And yeah, he bought 47,000 shares or something last month when the stock was trading, you know, for what Tim could pull out of his uh, his pocket. So uh, I, I don't know. This one's not done. And I think it's interesting what Bonwin just mentioned about the puts that were trading in August all the way it, down there because they lose that loan. This thing's going to zero. The CEO did purchase a bunch of shares that Dan had said, I think it was June 23rd, 24th. And let's be clear, it could have been a pre-planned uh, purchase. Of, of shares by the by the company CEO, but keep in mind that just days afterwards, that's when that more than one million share spike in trading volume happened too. Um, so there are a lot of things here that are interesting, that are probably worth looking into, and we'll continue to follow the story for you and keep you posted. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, moving on. New data exclusive to CNBC pointing to more turbulent times for the airline industry. CNBC teamed up with Change Research to poll voters in key battleground states. And when asked if they think, is it safe to fly, only 24 percent of respondents said yes. That sentiment also ringing true as Boeing shares dropped today on missed earnings. The jet maker plans to cut its production. Phil LeBeau spoke to the CEO earlier today. He joins us now with more. Phil. And Melissa, when you take a look at shares of Boeing, nobody's surprised that the stock moved lower today. As you mentioned, the company did report an earnings miss. Uh, they lost $2.4 billion uh, in the second quarter, a wider than expected loss. And obviously, COVID-19 shutting down the assembly line, fewer deliveries, all of that weighed on the company. Three things came out today uh, from the company as they were saying, this is what we're expecting, not only for the rest of this year, but as you look out over the next couple of years. You got lower production rates or a slower ramp up of other models like the 737 MAX, that will likely mean, or possibly mean, we should say, more job cuts. Remember, they're already eliminating about 16 to 19,000 jobs this year. Uh, and then you have the airline recovery. CEO Dave Calhoun said, look, I agree with what they're saying on the international level in terms of the airline recovery is going to be at least 2023, maybe 2024. Nobody's quite sure. Uh, and we're seeing that here in this country where passenger levels are down what, 20, you know, they're at 76%, 74%. It's just a fraction of where it was at this time last year. Here's Dave Calhoun talking with us this morning on Squawk on the Street about his view of when we might see a recovery. Just that early recovery post the first spike uh, and the fact that bookings came back and they came back fairly robustly for me, says that the underlying demand equation still exists and that eventually we will, we will solve this. And as you take a look at shares of Boeing and Airbus, the reason that we're also going to show you Airbus is that we get the first half results from Airbus tomorrow. Look, we're going to see the same thing that we saw with Boeing in terms of a terrible quarter with production and deliveries. They're also in the midst of severe job cuts over at a number of their facilities in Europe, simply because airlines around the world are cutting back on their orders, deferring or canceling. And one last thing, Melissa, all of this brings up the question, you're not seeing many people flying right now. Are the airlines going to roll out special fares, like $15 between Houston and Newark or on Frontier? Friends fly free. 
you will see more of that because the wow. airlines, they've got to put people in these seats as much as possible. And this brings up the bigger, the bigger question down the road. When do you see some pricing power when it comes to fares? But nobody's worried about that right now in the airline yeah. industry. They simply want to get people on board. Phil, thank you, as always. Phil LeBeau. Um, just out of curiosity, I, I pulled up United. You can fly to Orlando between August 14th and 18th for $27. Or Tampa, Tim, you can, you can go there for $27. It costs you more to get to the airport than to get to Tampa at this point. Yeah, no, no bid flying to, to Florida to, right now for a lot of reasons. <laughs> yeah. It's hotter in New York, by the way. Um, I, I think you have a case here with Boeing. Also, you know, we didn't really talk about the need to see Max. I, I, I recognize that there's not necessarily high demand for the 737 Max, but you need to see deliveries start uh, in early 2021. Uh, the liquidity story for Boeing is actually better than expected. So they've got about 30 billion in liquidity. Uh, they burned less in, in the second in, in the last quarter, the second quarter, uh, around 5.6 versus you know, 6.4 expected. Uh, but it, it's it's yes, this is going to be a slow slog. I think the most important thing is that this is a company that also has a defense business, um, which hasn't been destroyed. Uh, and that from a defense perspective, I, I think it's 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 still a, a critical company to our country. Uh, but that the commercial aircraft business is really about liquidity. And I think the company is certainly going to be there to the other side of this. But when people start flying again is something we talk about every night in 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 different shades of, of uh, you know, the economy that we're looking at. So um, you don't have to run out and buy Boeing tomorrow, but I, mm -hmm. I think in the longer term, uh, this is a stock that I've been long and I've been, uh, I've certainly traded around it, but I remain long. Uh, and I'm very confident that this company is coming back. Normalized earnings for Boeing uh, are, are, are something that are more difficult to judge than a lot of these other companies. But if we're putting that to 2022 for a lot of other companies, this company is very cheap here. Guy. A few weeks ago, and I know you have a memory like an elephant, Mel. Still you we played the game that you love, uh, trade it or fade it. Mm. And Karen, Karen, the great Karen Feynman was on, and Boeing was what you asked her about. And to her credit, I think the stock was like 198 or so. She said fade it, and we had a conversation, and we talked about the entry level of 165. Well, if you look up today on your Google machines, you'll see that I think the stock closed around 165. So this is about as good an entry point as you've had for quite some time. And Tim is right in terms of their cash flow position, for sure. But we all know that that can get pretty precarious pretty quickly as well, especially if this we're talking about uh, 2024 being somewhat normalized. And quite frankly, I'm not sure how they can have that clarity. So 165 makes sense, but you, know, you wonder if that S&P downgrade is around the corner. Just something to think about. All right. Coming up, Dan has got his eye on what he is calling the most important chart in the market. He'll reveal what it is when we come right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. The big tech hearing still underway. Uh, you see there Jeff Bezos in his first appearance uh, before congressmen and women on Capitol Hill. You can catch full coverage of the hearing on CNBC.com. Meantime, Dan Nathan is calling this chart the most important chart in the market. There are lots of charts in the market, Dan, but this one caught your eye. What are you seeing? Yeah, I, I look, I see a lot of tension building here in Disney. And for a lot of the reasons that we just talked about, uh, Tim just said no bid for 27 bucks to fly to Orlando or whatever it is. I just think that the way that this wedge in Disney breaks might be the way 
that we're going to see the economy break over the next few months, at least into the back half or at the end of this year. And think about what's going on with Disney here. They obviously have the NBA down in Orlando in a bubble. We see what's going on with Major League Baseball. If the NBA doesn't go well, I think that is going to be a very negative sign for how um, our economy reopening is going to go. You know, a lot of what Mike Wilson said about his bullish outlook for the back half of this year into next year is predicated on the fact that this virus disappears like like a miracle. And, and let's be frank right now, it is not disappearing like a miracle. It is raging across the country in a lot of places, specifically like where Disney really needs things to happen. So right now, people don't want to go to theme parks. They can't go see sports or concerts. They can't go to a movie theater to see a movie. Um, you know, there's just a lot of things that this company is really exposed. I love this company. I want to see them do well. But the way this thing breaks, and I'm not particularly optimistic about it, I think is the way that the economy breaks over the next few months. Uh, Bonowin, you worried about Disney? Uh, yes, and I, I, I've said so previously. Um, Dan makes some great points. At the end of the day, listen, we, we've talked about Disney Plus. We've talked about some of the other verticals. We've talked about their um, direct-to-consumer business. All, all of these are strong businesses, but at the end of the day, parks and recreation, that is where they make the bulk of their money. And until that is fully operative, I, I, yeah, I definitely think there's headwinds with the name. All right, up next, final trades. Time for the final trades, go around the horn, Tim. Yeah, UPS, you don't get a chance to buy for earnings, but I think you'll hear that the residential mix isn't catastrophic. The charts in this and FedEx and the shippers stay in this trade. Dan. Yeah, Expedia reports tomorrow after the close. I would not be a buyer into this print. I think you're going to get an opportunity in the 70s to buy this thing. Bonowin. I reiterate, I'd rather pay attention to what's going on in the short term and adjust in the long term. I'm sticking with GLD. Guy. I just want the folks at home to know I just purchased the Venmo app from the application store since you're all talking about it. Is I the find store it fascinating. Open? I really didn't realize great. the store reopened. It, it, opened, it opened for me. NXPI reported earlier this week. I think the stock uh, is cheap here. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5. Meantime, Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.